to each and every one of you here this morning. It's good to be here. It's good to be anywhere. I, somebody asked me the other day, how's life going for you, Dave? I said, it's clicking. My neck is clicking, my elbows are clicking, my knees are clicking. Well, <clears throat> some of you have had some tenting experiences this past uh, year, past summer. And I'm happy to announce that John chapter 7 is a tenting story. So that we're going to learn a little bit about how they camped in the days of Jesus. Um, we've kind of used a, a, a bit of a, an attempt to uh, talk about it as intense faith. Um, but uh, John chapter 7 is a really good, a good passage. And uh, I just want you to know that there's a message here for you, each one of you today. Just as your faces differ, so your needs will differ, but the Holy Spirit has promised through his, God's word, where two or three, and there's more than two or three here, so we can take him at his word that he is present here amongst us. But let's just ask the Lord himself to just quieten our hearts and open our, our minds to the message he has for us. Lord, we thank you this morning that we can just pause, acknowledge that to you belong the glory. The Lord Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so we pray that we might lift up Jesus this day, that you may help us to gaze on him, and that we might love you the more for having done so. Lord, thank you again for each one here. We just pray your blessing upon our time together. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you remember, the theme for our gospel account, John's gospel, is a, is a wonderful little gospel. And like the other three, it has a theme. If you read the Bible without understanding why the writings were there, uh, it makes it very difficult. And so John writes and he says, everything I'm saying, this is why I'm saying it, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. And I love the fact that John makes it very clear in this theme verse that it's not just about head knowledge belief, but life-changing belief. He makes it very clear, believing this, and that's a confessional faith, and that believing you might have life. You know, today in North America, there are millions who, if you ask them, are you a Christian? They'd say, absolutely, absolutely. I live in a Christian land. I read the Bible. I pray. But if you were to ask them, but do you have the life of Jesus? They'd say, what are you talking about? I go to church. I was confirmed. I was whatever. John makes it clear. If you just have the confession and you don't have the life, you haven't got anything except the confession which is nice, but it won't get you into heaven because you need Jesus. So, where does this setting take place in John chapter 7? Well, the setting is Jerusalem, and we looked a little bit about, at that last week. Uh, it says in verse 10 that his brothers had gone up and he went, he also went up, that he, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as in secret, and he was going to Jerusalem. 
Now there were three great feasts that every good Israeli needed to follow through with. If you were a follower of God, a follower of the Lord, you had to go three times to Jerusalem. It didn't matter if you were in Bethlehem. It didn't matter if you were in Nazareth in the north. It didn't matter if you were in the far south Negev. You had to go to Jerusalem for these three great feasts. The first one, of course, was the Feast of Passover, usually March and April, based on the lunar calendar. And it was centered around the barley harvest. And all three feasts actually are centered around a formal harvest time. So that it was really easy. Like they didn't have to have day timers or day planners or cell phones to know when to go to things because all they had to do was look at their crops and say, oh, the barley's almost ready to be harvested. We're close to Passover. And the barley season was a reflective again of the one who came and said, I am the bread of life, John chapter 6. And so it's also a reminder that Passover was that great celebration of deliverance from slavery, from bondage. And so they were remembering that the Passover lamb was offered way back in the days of Pharaoh. Ow! How did that just happen? My, my, my. That is an amazing thing that just happened there. And it is... Dripping, which is not a good sign. I am so sorry. I hope I have not destroyed somebody's laptop in the process. If I was making a Mac commercial right now, I could say, we just did the Mac Timex torture test. <laughs> wow. Pentecost. Most of us think of Pentecost as that great miracle and the, as the descent of the Holy Spirit and the, the, the amazing things that took place on that day. What we forget is the Jewish mindset. Anybody ever gone to a large football game or maybe a large hockey game and there's, there's always a time when we call it halftime. And halftime, people are, are excited because there's that whatever special musical talent and, and there's somebody there that's uh, making a, uh, you know, a first-time performance or whatever. And the halftime is a really big deal. And you don't have to explain to 21st century people what's going on at halftime. And when you use that phraseology, right away you understand what it's talking about. It's half time again. Okay. That's okay. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with, with me to your Bibles and we'll just work without the technology and we'll do it that way while he keeps working away on it. Yeah. So uh, the, the Feast of Pentecost was a, a feast which commemorated the giving of the law. So when you have the Moses coming down from... Um, the mountain, and then he, he returns to the mountain and God gives them those ten commands. That was the Feast of Pentecost. And I'd like to point out that one of the things that Paul makes very clear is that those that we're no longer under the law, but we're under the rule of the Holy Spirit. And so the Feast of Pentecost comes in right at that very time to commemorate that we have now been energized into a new relationship with God through His Son. And so the Feast of Pentecost was the second, but the third one, the one that's least talked about, is the Feast of Tenting, or Tabernacles, or Booths, as some of your translations say. And in John chapter 7, you have that, that situation that was going on where the 
disciples and the brothers of Jesus are saying, you really should go down to make it clear you are who you say you are. You're the Messiah. And of course, he goes on says, no, I'm not going at this time. And he goes later. And we talked a little bit about that last week. The, the passage that we are reading in before us today starts from verse 25. And it says that some of them were in Jerusalem said, is not this he who they seek to kill? Look, he speaks boldly. Why could they say that? Well, he was right in the midst of this great celebration. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was not like the usual feast. Today, um, as uh, a Jewish community will gather together, they will build thatched roofs, they will build thatched huts, and they will gather together for eight whole days of festivities. And during that time period, they will not only gather together, but they will remember what great things God has done. Because for 40 years, the nation of Israel, although delivered from Egypt, lived in tents. And that would mean that they were stressed out in tents-wise, but they were in tents. And they were living that way. So this great festival was designed to remind the people that this has happened in the past, but now, now there is something happening in the present and you have been given rest. You've been given a home. You've been given prosperity. So the great first session of, of tabernacle feast worshipping went on under Joshua's day as they entered into the promised land. The second great time was under King Solomon's day when he ruled with a mighty arm from the north way up in Damascus all the way down to Egypt. And he, he literally was uh, a world rule at that time. And then, of course, this time, during King Herod's time, the Jewish community was really anxious to await the Messiah and they believed strongly that if they were to practice every feast every way that God had included for them to do so, they would see the Messiah. Over 400 priests and the equal number of scribes were involved in this worship. It was no little affair. It lasted eight days. And during every ceremony, every service, there were the offerings of bullocks. On the first day, 13. On the second day, 12. On the third day, 11. By the time they got to the seventh day, they were down to seven bullocks being offered on the sacrificial altar. The total number was 70 that had been offered. You say, what's the significance of that? The Jewish community saw this 70 as the representation for all the 70 nations because 70 was always the number of the nations or all the rest of the world. And on the last day, the great day of the feast, they offered only one, and that was for Israel. And that offering was to be a substitutionary sacrifice for all the sins. But then the people themselves, as they would gather together to celebrate this, they had a particular way of doing it. First of all, they had great lights that were strung up in the temple. They were so bright that you could see them for miles around. And these lights were lit to illuminate the the entire time during the entire day and night. And they were not put out. These lights were not just the only thing that was happening. Every day, the group would come in and divide up into three companies. One company would go down with the priest, and the one company would take the priest and accompany him on the, to the altar where there would be the sacrificial prep, preparations being taken place. The second company would go down to the pool of Siloam and would gather there where water was taken out of the pool. And the third company 
would come together and with another priest would go out into the community and gather in uh, vines and twigs and branches and all of the sorts of things that were needed and would bring them and make a canopy over top of the sacrifice. At this point in time, all three companies would arrive back. And as they arrived back, they would... By the way, the picture... Are we seeing that? Yes, we are. The picture you're seeing there is, uh, is what is a modern-day uh, feast of the booth would look like even today. And this is, uh, this is taken from some research we did on the, on the internet. So, thank you, Dave. I appreciate your, your help. Yes, doctor, doctoring in more ways than we realize. This is one of the festivities that we talked about. So, background, again. Um, we've already discussed that, the entire feast lasting eight days, and the discussion about the, um, the matter. It says of, in the, the first uh, portion of our reading today, verses 25 to uh, 31, that they sought to take him, verse 30, but no one laid a hand on him. Here's Jesus in the middle of this huge feast. He's making a bold proclamation, and he's crying out, you both know me and know where I'm from. Now, he's responding to somebody who said, we don't know where this man is from. So there was a lot of discussion and debate at the time. Who is this Jesus? Is he really who he claims to be? And it says that they sought to take him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Have you ever thought about that? That phrase is unique to John's Gospel. In fact, it's used seven times in the Gospel. And the first time it's used is in John chapter 2, where Jesus makes the water into wine. The second time it's used is here. And the third time is in John chapter 8, as we move on, John chapter 12, when he declares before all the people that now is the hour come for the Son of Man to be glorified, this is a reminder that God himself says, my soul is satisfied with you. Father, save me from this hour. And the voice from heaven says, for this reason, for this reason, have you come. And then John 13 verse 1 is the next uh, verse speaks of the Feast of Passover, and it says that it his, when he knew his hour had come. John 16 talks about labor, and those of us who have been witnessing the birth of little children know that there's a time when there's all of that uh, tribulation, as it were, beforehand, and finally the hours come, and it's coming, and there's no way you're going to stop that little child from coming into the world. And in John 17, 1, this is the words of Jesus. He lifts up his eyes and says, Father, the hour has come. And the reason I want to bring this to your attention is there are those who today would suggest that Jesus was, in fact, a victim of his circumstances. That he was, in fact, just um, unable to control the Roman soldiers, the scribes, the Pharisees. He was a martyr for his faith, but he was not in control. Let me assure you, Jesus was very much in control then, and he's very much in control. You think that was an accident that that, that glass broke there? That was no accident. That's all part of the plan. I haven't a clue what part of the plan it is, but that's part of the plan. You say, well, come on, Dave, you're getting a little, little overdoing it here. 
Jesus said himself, does not one bird fall, sparrow fall from heaven and I don't know about it? I know all the hairs on How many of you know all the hairs on your head? How many know how many hairs you lost this morning? He knows the number of hairs on your head right now. He knows every cell in your body, all trillion and a half or whatever you have. He knows every one of them. And he loves you. Every one part of you. And so it says that this was his hour. His hour was not yet, but his hour is come. The reminder is, you and I. In Psalms 139, it's described as an hour he has written our story. Even before it was written, all the day, my days were accomplished. His, that story has been written. And so, the questions they were asking, they were asking some questions of him in verses 25. It's not this he whom they were seeking to kill. They were asking, he speaks publicly, but they say nothing in reply to him. Did not those in authority know indeed this is the authentic Christ? This is the Messiah. And we perceive where this fellow comes from. They could look around and they could see the brothers of Jesus, James and Joseph and others that were uh, grew up in the same family as Joseph and Mary. And, and they would say, There's his, we know where he's coming from. The Messiah, nobody knows where he's coming from. And that was common among the people of the day. They looked at verses like Zechariah and Micah 5 and 2, which says that he will be born in Bethlehem. And they said, he ain't born in Bethlehem. He's from Nazareth. Nazareth is way up in the north. It's kind of like saying, uh, he's not born from Toronto. He's born from South Porcupine. You know? Ever get that little chuckle every once in a while? You're talking to people from down south and they say, where are you from? I'm from South Porcupine. Where's that? Oh, it's just beside North Hedgehog. <laughs> you see, the people in the south, we don't, you know, there's a sense of, oh, I'm from Toronto, Markham, or whatever, you know. I'm from the elite part of the country. You're from Where? That's the way they looked at Jesus. And we know where this guy's from. He's from Galilee. What? Nothing good ever came from Galilee. Ah, yes. Someone very good. The only good person that ever walked the face of this earth, besides Adam, before he sinned, was Jesus. And he was and is good. Wow. So they, uh, they saw this and they questioned him. Where does he get his word? And Jesus then kind of discusses that with them and says, you will seek me and not find me. And that's so true of those who have rejected you. Why are so many empty seats today? Why do we have empty seats? And thank God for each one of you that's sitting here today, but there's a lot of empty seats. Why? Why? You go to a, a, a big ball game or a big football game, you know, people are paying to get in. I don't see anybody forcing you to pay a fee to come in here. You know, people are, are rooting and tooting for their team. And uh, I'm a Blue Jays fan, and some of us are Maple Leaf fans. Or, oh, we don't always admit it, but we are. <laughs> you know, and when we go to these games, and we really enjoy them, but, but I, I see the vast majority of the people today aren't, aren't, you know, aren't really attracted to Jesus. And that was the case in his day as well. You know, John chapter 6 said there was a great falling away. It says, many left him. And then it says, uh, he says, oh, oh Peter, uh, James, uh, Matthew, you don't want to go as well. And, he said, and then they said, Peter 
brings up and he comes up to the moment of the time. He, for that moment, he's got it right on the button. Whom would we go to? John 6, 68. Who would we go to? You have the words of eternal life. I hope that you can all say that. That there's no one else you can go to besides Jesus and his words. And these people had, you know, John, Jesus, where's your followers now? Where's all your thousands that have gone and you claim to have fed? Where are they? I don't see them. Where are they, Jesus? You're just standing there by yourself shouting like a lunatic. Where, where's your followers? Oh, I know what you're saying. You're going to go off to the Greeks. The Jewish Greeks who, who well, we don't really consider them true Jews. We don't really consider them authentic believers in Jehovah. You're going to go to them, are you? And then he goes on to talk about this offer. Now, the last day of the feast, the eighth day, the pilgrims would leave their booths at dawn, and uh, as, it here, as you can see before you, they would take in their right hand the myrtle and willow branch tied together, and their left hand was a, a paradise apple or some other fruit representing the forbidden fruit, and they divided up into those three camps we talked about. They would do this every day, but on the eighth day, they would go up and do this again. And in the middle of the end of the sacrifice, see if we can... There would be that threefold blast, and they would take the water that came from the pool of Siloam, and they would take wine, water and wine, and they would pour them into funnels at the base of the great altar. And as they poured these in, they would then be enchanting those verses from Psalms 113 to Psalms 118. And you know what the Psalms 118 says? This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But right beside it, it says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And as they are pouring this in, and as there's this great acknowledgement that they alone now, that one oxen, that one bullock has been offered for all of their sin, then it is that Jesus comes out and says to them, at this moment, there was silence, and Jesus cries out, If any is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me as the written word of God, the scripture said, out from his heart will flow rivers and floods of life-giving water. The power of that moment, as this entire thousand of pilgrims would be watching, and all of a sudden that lone rabbi stands up on the steps in the temple and says, come to me. You've been coming to the wrong thing. You've been coming to the temple. You've been coming to the water. You've been coming to the sacrifice. I am the sacrifice. I am the water. I am the one that gives you life. And he still offers that same offer today. On the screen, on the right-hand side, you'll notice that that's the River Jordan. It's a little bit... This is a current picture, by the way, and it's a little bit dry. In fact, so much so that Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, is actually dropped in its, uh, its uh, table. Its water table has gone down about a meter. There's actually islands that are surfacing. They found bombs from the First World War left over the other day. You might have seen a little note about that on the Internet. But the water has been taken out of the river so much so that it's, it's really quite small and shallow. The one on the left... 
It looks pretty powerful. But you wouldn't want to drink that water. That's Old Faithful in Yellowstone Park. That's burning water and it's probably laced with sulfur and gases and other things. So while it looks great, it, it doesn't have the quantity of real refreshment. And as Dave was sharing earlier, um, you really need to know what it's like to have that experience of being fully refreshed, fully in, in experiencing the Lord Jesus. He offers himself as that water in the desert. Now, there's a group of people that start thinking about what his offer is. Instead of saying, I want the water, I want you, I want life, I want that refreshing, bubbling water that you're talking about, like the woman in John chapter 4, they instead say, oh, well, I think he's the, I think he's the, uh, the prophet. And in Deuteronomy 18, you'll find the passage where prophet Moses said, there will be a prophet like unto me that will arise. And so they're saying, he's got to be that prophet. There's a great percentage of the community at large who still to this day calls Jesus just a prophet. And of course, there were others that would say, no, he's more than that. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the coming king. He is the son of David. And of course, this was what they, they proclaimed as he came in on that Palm Sunday. And as he walked into through those gates, they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the Christ. And some others said, well, will he come from Galilee? Doesn't even, doesn't even scripture, Micah 5, 2, say that he's going to come from Bethlehem? Modern day picture of Bethlehem, by the way. And there was a division. There was a split. And a splits are good in that sense because it really defines who is on one side and who is on the other side. We have that verse. Who is on the Lord's side? Who for him shall go? And we today need to know what side are we on. There's no middle sitting on the fence side. You either are for him or against him. And the security were sent by the scribes and the Pharisees. And the security were sent to him to take him by force. And what does it say? What does it say? They came back and they said, what? We gave you a job to do. You couldn't even do that. Where's the man? We asked you to arrest him. Oh, dude, nobody spoke like that guy. Like, I, I can't get over it. He, he, he just seemed to pierce right into our souls. I, I, we couldn't take him. It was just like, wow. You know, that glass of water that fell and broke into many pieces, huh? I couldn't have put that back together if I'd wanted to. It's amazing that this computer laptop is still going. Thanks for your prayers for it, by the way. The point is this. Those soldiers could no more take Jesus than if they would put their hands under running water and try to bring more running water in and cup it and carry it all to the, to the temple and they get there and it's, there's, there's nothing left. That's how much power they had over Jesus. The Pharisees ask a subtle question. Have you been led astray? Who? Who amongst these Pharisees has even believed in him? Ah, these people, these crowds, they don't know a thing. And that's, the, that's pride speaking, isn't it? 
Pride talks that way. But what they didn't know was Nicodemus amongst them. And he takes this timid, rather timid stand and says, doesn't our, our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? We know you are also from Galilee. Uh, they throw back into him. As I was studying this passage, it became apparent that they weren't saying, are you also from Galilee? They were saying, you are also from Galilee. And I never thought of that before. Nicodemus, a northern lad, made good in the south. He comes to Jesus, another northern lad. And he says, we know you're a prophet sent from God. No one can do the things you do, but that you be God is with, with him. And Jesus right away says to him, you wanna, you've got to be born again if you want to see the things of, of God. Marvel not, I said, and you need to be born again, Nicodemus. See, Nicodemus had had that conversation. He investigated. Have you had that conversation with God? Have you really sincerely said, Lord, if you're really there, I want to hear you, I want to know you, I want to know eternal life, I'm willing to do your will. Or are you amongst the masses who say, hey, I'd rather have the show. Uh, boy, that glass that broke there, that was pretty cool. That was pretty funny. You know, I'd rather have the show, the great lights, the sacrifices, the bullocks, the, the smoke, the incense, the intonation of the voices. I'd rather have the show. I don't want to get involved. No, no, no. I'm a spectator person. I like to watch, but I don't want you to touch me at my inner being. That's where Jesus will only touch you. That's the only place he wants to touch you. Right in the core of who you are. And that's where Nicodemus had been touched. And he's now starting to come forth and he's realizing, this one, I don't understand where he's going with this. Boy, I'll tell you, they want to kill him and he's doing it the right way. They're going to kill him. And exactly what happens, Jesus dies on that cross. And who's right there right afterwards? Nicodemus. To take the time to wrap the body in the burial clothing and anoint him and put him in that tomb. Yes, Nicodemus got it. He was willing to investigate and he saw the truth about Jesus. So what do you think of Jesus? Is he just a good prophet like these people thought? See the Messiah? See the Son of God? God the Son? King of Kings? I was going to give a long story about this gentleman here and I, I really can't take too much time but I will take one minute to talk about this picture that you see in front of you. I'll try not to break any more glasses. This, this gentleman, his name, you probably don't know him by his picture but his name is Jerry Horworth. He's uh, the announcer at Rogers Center, Rogers Stadium. He does all the Blue Jay games. He's the radio announcer. He's the... He's the gentleman who, you're, he's the voice you hear. And uh, he's now at the age of 70, and he's been doing this for about 30 years now. But I wanted to share a little bit about how he came to faith in Christ. See, he learned that life throws many curveballs. And Jerry met... A Gary Lavelle, who professed his love for Jesus unpretentiously. Now, Jerry went to church, believed in God, but God wasn't real to, Jer to Jerry. 
as he was to Gary. So Jerry was a fine announcer and an outstanding person, Gary remembers 20 years later. He always had a sense of humor and a very kind man, and I really enjoyed Gary's company when he was with the Jays, said Jerry. He talked so comfortably about his love of God. I told him, there's something I want to be able to do, and Gary told him to get a Bible and start reading the book of Proverbs. That got him going in the right direction. Just before, later on, Don Gordon, another pitcher, invited Jerry to the Bible, a Bible study, and after attending a few times, Jerry became a Christian. From then on, his life wasn't about him or his career. It was about God. So just before I get in front of the microphone, I try to find a small room where I can pray. And this is my prayer. Dear Lord, let me love, praise, and serve you with this broadcast. Let me inform and entertain whatever we happen to reach, young and old, all across Canada. Let this be the best broadcast I can do for others. I point to the sky and say, thank you for everything. Then go out and do it. Some people say, you shouldn't be praying for sports. What about the Christians on the other teams? I say, let their supporters pray for them. But I pray for the Blue Jays, not just because they, they are important in a professional football sense, but because I hope to see one of them up here at an athlete's banquet someday, talking about it and having a World Series ring to show that he's really who he says he is, but he has faith in Jesus Christ. You know, this is a gentleman we don't often hear about, but I thought I would bring him to your attention today because... This is one of his favorite verses. God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son, that whoso believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, where is Jesus with you? It says at the end of Mark, they went out and preached the Lord working with them. May the Lord Jesus work with you this day. If you've never entered into that relationship with him, why not today? I'm sure if you were to stay behind and talk to Dave or myself or others who here, Jim, Broad, others here that would lovingly point you to the Savior, we'd be more than happy to see you come to faith in Jesus. And may God bless you as we further wait upon the Lord and final concluding song.
message we heard today of your life-giving water and for the offer that you've made that who any of us are thirsty, we should come to you. We pray that we might believe, that we might come, and that we might drink deeply of your life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.